Hi, and welcome to Sleep Tight Relax. Hi there, this is Clark. You may notice that I have a slight change in my voice today. This morning, I woke up with a slight dry cough and the feeling that I might be in the early stages of a chest cold. Of course, with all that is happening in the world today, it's easy to start worrying that it might be more serious than it really is. Naturally, anxiety and worry have biological purposes in the human body. A long time ago, anxiety was what kept our hunter-gatherer ancestors safely alert while they searched for food. Even today, worry and anxiety keep us from making mistakes that will compromise our safety. Worry can create physical symptoms as well. I mentioned in a previous session how the fight or flight hormones prepare our bodies to either fight or run from something dangerous. Our heart rates increase and our breathing gets fast and shallow. We sweat and we may even experience nausea. There are a few techniques that I use to cope when I feel that anxiety or worry is overcoming my thoughts during the day or night. They often help me sleep, they help me relax. Everyone is different and while these may work for me, they may not necessarily work for you. That's okay. But please try these at least two to three times before making a judgment on whether it suits you. First, researchers have found that writing about a stressful event for 15 or more minutes for four consecutive days can lessen the anxiety a person feels about that event. Although the person may initially feel more anxiety about the stressor, the cause of the anxiety, Eventually, the effects of writing about anxious events relieved anxious symptoms for up to six months after the exercise. I find that writing in a journal is an excellent way for me to organize my thoughts around what is causing these worries. Sometimes, I come to realize that my anxiety is unfounded. But as found in the study, there is something about the act of writing that seems to have a way in itself to bring about calm. An added bonus is that as you write journals over long periods of time, you can go back and find that you may have experienced these same feelings before and discover that as my mother used to often say, 
things have a way of working themselves out in the end. Another technique I often use is stretching. A study published in a respected medical journal showed that children who practice yoga not only experience the uplifting benefits of exercise, but also maintain those benefits long after they are done with their practice. Even if you're unfamiliar with yoga poses, I'm particularly poor at all but the most basic. The process of slow stretching can provide many of the same benefits. During our last session, I introduced an exercise called the Sun Goddess, which I and others have found especially useful for releasing tension. But even standing straight, taking deep breaths as you try to touch the sky can do wonders to help release any tension you may feel. Try this before you go to bed or when you get up in the morning. It really feels great. A Stanford study showed that exposure to green spaces has a positive cognitive effect on school children. Going for a walk in nature allows you to reconnect with tangible, physical objects, calms your mind, and helps the logical brain to take over for the anxious brain. I talked briefly about this in another episode, when I mentioned the advice of a boss of mine on how to get better sleep. My advice in that episode was if you could not go outside for a walk in nature, an activity which I love but find very difficult in the winter, as I still haven't adjusted to the cold. But science has shown that listening to nature sounds also has a positive effect. You can try that, particularly before bed, but if all possible, try to find time go for a walk. Grab some sticks when you're walking, feel the branches of trees. It really does wonders. But if you can't do that, even breathing in the fresh air from a window while listening to the sounds of nature may bring you some effect. Lastly, you might try exercise. Exercise releases endorphins, the feel-good chemicals in our bodies. Exercise that is more intense than your normal physical activity level can actually reduce your body's physical response to anxiety. I love to run long distances and I enjoy doing CrossFit multiple times a week. Often, when faced with stress, we might say, I need to go for a run. Running feels very therapeutic for me, like combining meditation and exercise in one activity. I almost always finish with a far more happy and relaxed state of mind than when I started. Of course, my activity might not be yours, 
you might find the same results from gym class or even walking around the block. Of course, intense exercise just before sleep might not be the best choice. Try to incorporate this technique during the day for at least a few hours before you plan to sleep. My experiences in life have taught me to focus on the things that are within my control and not to spend time worrying about those things that are not. They've taught me that we as human beings are vulnerable. We are not perfect and we fail a lot. But this vulnerability does not have to paralyze us and keep us from doing our best every day. Focus on the things that you can change. Try these techniques that I mentioned and please let us know if this works for you. Now, being a new show, it would be helpful to us if you rated, reviewed, and subscribed wherever you listen to podcasts as it helps other people find our show. Thank you. In this session, Cheryl has selected an old favorite Sherlock Holmes as a sleep story. Before she gets started, it's important to ensure that you have created an environment conductive to good sleep. I like to ensure that my bedroom is as dark quiet and cool as possible. You will have your own preference. The Boscombe Valley Mystery. Chapter One, An Ordinary Crime My name is Dr. Watson, and I have the good fortune to be the friend and companion of Sherlock Holmes. I try to keep a record of the cases he has solved. I have been with him many times when he has solved cases with just a few clues and his powerful brain. One such case was the Boscombe Valley Mystery. I knew nothing about it until I got a telegram early one morning at home. It was from Holmes, asking me to go with him to the west of England. My wants are few and simple, so I very swiftly packed a case, said farewell to my wife, and was at Paddington in less than an hour. Holmes was pacing up and down the platform. He was instantly recognizable. Tall and gaunt, all dressed in his long gray cloak and deer stalker hat. It is very good of you to come, Watson. I need someone I can rely on. We had the carriage to ourselves and Holmes spent the time reading through a huge pile of newspapers. 
Now and then he stopped to make notes and to think. Finally, he rolled the papers into a ball and threw them onto the luggage rack. Have you heard anything of the case? He asked. Not a word. I've not seen a paper for days. Hmm, said Holmes. It's one of those simple cases which are extremely difficult. What do you mean? The more ordinary a crime scene to be, the more difficult it is to see the solution. It is the unusual which makes things easy. What kind of crime are we dealing with? Murder, Watson. A serious case has already been made against the son of the murdered man. It happened in Boscombe Valley, near Hereford. The owner of much land in that area is a Mr. John Turner. He came back from Australia a few years ago and settled here. Made his fortune, did he? Enough to buy several farms. One he let out to another Australian, Mr. Charles McCarthy. McCarthy has a son of 18 called James. Are there no wives? I asked. Neither of the wives is still living, but Turner has one daughter of similar age to James. And the murder? It seems that last Monday, McCarthy left his house at Hatherley at about three in the afternoon. He walked down to Boscombe Pool, a small lake at the end of Boscombe Valley. He told his servant that he had an appointment at three o'clock. He never came back alive. McCarthy was seen walking towards the pool by two people. Both say he was walking alone. The gamekeeper also says that a few minutes later, James McCarthy went the same way, carrying a gun. He thought the son was following his father. And was the father shot? I asked. Oh no, replied Holmes. Please wait. There was another witness. Patience Moran, daughter of the lodgekeeper on the Boscombe estate was picking flowers in the woods. She says that she saw James and his father having a violent quarrel. She heard Charles McCarthy using strong language to his son, and she saw the son raise his hand as if to strike his father. Holmes continued. She ran away and told her mother. Almost as soon as she had finished telling her story, James McCarthy ran up and said he has found his father dead. They followed him and found the body by the side of the pool. The head had been beaten in by blows from such heavy and blunt weapon. Such as the butt end of a gun? I asked. Exactly. 
Anyway, Watson, James McCarthy has been arrested and charged with his father's murder. It looks exceedingly grave against the young man. Has he said anything? Indeed, he has. And it makes an interesting case. According to James McCarthy, he had been away in Bristol for three days. He came back to find his father out. He set out to do some rabbit shooting at the other end of the Boscombe pool. About a hundred yards from the pool, he heard a cry of cooey, which was the usual signal between him and his father. His father was surprised to see him. For some reason, an argument took place and James walked off. He had not gone far when he heard a dreadful cry. According to his story, he returned and found his father dying. He held him in his arms, but he could do nothing. He then ran off to the lodge keepers for help. Is there nothing else to go on? I asked. Two things which may turn out to be important, said Holmes. James heard his father speak before he died. He said he spoke about a rat. A rat? Precisely, my dear Watson. And the other matter was the subject of the quarrel. Which was? James McCarthy refused to tell the coroner what they had quarreled about. Refused? Quite so. Holmes looked up at me, raised his eyebrows, and smiled. You see why I am interested, Watson. This is not such a simple case as they would have us believe. Chapter 2. A Blow From Behind We arrived at the Hereford Arms in Ross at half past four. We were sipping our tea when the door burst open and in rushed one of the loveliest young women I have ever seen. Oh, Mr. Sherlock Holmes, she cried. I am so glad you have come. I know that James didn't do it. We have known each other since we were children. He is too tender-hearted to hurt a fly. You may rely on my doing all that I can, replied Holmes, deducing correctly that the lady was Mr. Turner's daughter, Alice. James never did it, 
she repeated. And about his quarrel with his father, I am sure he refused to speak of it because it concerned me. In what way? Mr. McCarthy wanted James to marry me. We have always loved one another like brother and sister, but James is so young, and he is not willing to commit himself to such a step. She blushed, and I deduced that she would not object to marrying him, however. Thank you, said Holmes, and may I see your father tomorrow? I am afraid the doctor won't allow it. The doctor? Have you not heard? Poor father has not been strong for years, but this has made him quite ill. He was such a strong man once when he was in Australia. Mr. McCarthy was the only man who knew him in those days. Really, said Holmes, that is interesting. Thank you, Miss Turner. You have been a great help. She smiled gratefully at him. I must go home now. Father misses me so if I leave him. She hurried from the room as impulsively as she had entered. Holmes decided to set off for Hereford immediately to see James McCarthy. And while he was away, I pondered the details of the murder. The local paper had the full inquest report, which included the surgeon's description of the injuries. The bones on the left-hand side of the skull, at the back, had been shattered by a heavy blow. This gave me pause for thought. Such a blow must have been struck from behind, which is not what you would expect in a face-to-face -face argument. Then there was the matter of the man's dying words, a rat. What could it mean? Holmes returned late without much more information. He had found out, though, the truth about James's feelings towards Miss Turner. He is madly in love with her, remarked Holmes. Then why argue with his father about the match? Because, Watson, he is already married. Great heavens, Holmes! He is hardly more than a boy. And he was even more of a boy when he got himself into the clutches of a barmaid in Bristol. He married her secretly over a year ago when Miss Turner was away at boarding school. So he is being scolded for not doing what he would love to do? How maddening. Quite so. However, good may come of this evil. It seems that the barmaid found out he was in serious trouble. She has thrown him over. She has written to say that she has a husband already in the Bermuda dockyard. So there is no tie between them? Happily so, but a small comfort for being in prison on a murder charge. But if he is innocent, who has done it? 
Let me draw your attention to two things, Watson. First, the murdered man had an appointment with someone. That person could not have been his son. His son was away, and he didn't know when he was returning. Of course, and the second thing? The murdered man was heard to cry, Cooey! before he knew his son was anywhere near. The case depends upon such things. Holmes closed his eyes and would say no more. Chapter 3 The Scene of the Crime The following morning, we set off for Hatherley Farm and the Boscombe Pool. As the carriage bounced down the country lanes, Holmes turned to me. One other interesting fact, Watson. Mr. McCarthy lived at Hatherley Farm, rent-free. How very generous of Mr. Turner, I replied. But then they were friends from Australia. Does it not seem odd, though? McCarthy, who had so little of his own, talked of marrying his son to Turner's daughter. He talked of it in a very confident way. But I have discovered that Turner himself was against it. It did seem odd, but I could deduce nothing from it. We soon arrived at the farm, a comfortable-looking two-story building. The maid, at Holmes' request, showed us the boots McCarthy had been wearing. She also found a pair of his son's boots. Holmes measured them all very carefully and then set off to the pool. It was damp, marshy ground, and there were marks of many feet on the path and on the short grass beside it. How simple it would have been, exclaimed Holmes, if I had been here before they came like a herd of buffalo. Many of the important tracks have been obscured. He peered at the ground and then cried, Aha! Here are three separate tracks of the same feet. He took out a lens and lay down to get a better view, all of the time talking to himself. These are young McCarthy's feet. Twice he was walking and once he ran swiftly. The soles are deeply marked, but the heels hardly visible. That bears out his story. Here are the father's feet as he paced up and down. Ha! What have we here? Tiptoes. Tiptoes, square too. Quite unusual boots. Now, where did they come from? Holmes paced up and down, sometimes losing 
and sometimes finding the track. He stopped in the edge of the wood, and under the shadow of a great beech tree, he lay down again. He stayed there a long time, turning over leaves and dry twigs. A jagged stone was lying among the moss. He picked it up and examined it carefully. Then he got up and followed a pathway through the woods, which led to the main road, where he stopped. He showed me the stone. This may interest you, he said. If I am not mistaken, the murder was done with it. He did not sound as if he expected to be mistaken, but I had to ask. How can you tell? There are no marks on it. The grass was growing under it, so it had only been there a few days. It matches the injuries, and there is no sign of another weapon. And the murderer? The murderer is a tall man, left-handed. He limps with the right leg and wears thick-soled shooting boots. He smokes Indian cigars, uses a cigar holder, and carries a blunt penknife. There are several under-indications, but these may be enough to aid us in our search. Holmes was silent for a long time, and we did not speak again until we were back at the Hereford Arms. Chapter 4 A Rat After lunch, Holmes sat with his tapering fingers together, staring into space. Then he turned to me. I don't know quite what to do, Watson. I should value your advice. Let me explain. Pray do so. Let us presume that what young James said was true. In what respect? About two things in particular. One I mentioned earlier, that his father called Cooee before seeing him. The other was McCarthy's dying words about a rat. What of this Cooee then? It could not have been meant for his son. As far as McCarthy knew, his son was in Bristol. The cooee was meant to call the person he was meeting. But cooee is an Australian greeting. Hence, he was expecting to meet someone from Australia. I nodded. And the rat? Holmes took a folded paper from his pocket. This is a map of the colony of Victoria 
in Australia. I had it sent over this morning. He put his hand over part of the map. What do you read? A rat, I said. And now? He raised his hand. I could see the whole word. Ballarat. Quite so. That was the word that McCarthy spoke. His son heard the last part only. He was trying to say the name of his murderer. So-and-so of Ballarat. That's wonderful. It's obvious. Now, you see, I have narrowed down the field. A tall Australian who is at home in the district. At home enough to find his way through the back of the estate. His height you deduced from the length of his stride and his boots, but what about his lameness? The mark of his right foot was always less clear than his left. He put less weight on it. Why? Because he limped. But his left-handedness? You noticed the injury as reported at the inquest. A blow struck from behind, yet from the left side. Surely a left-handed man? He stood behind the tree during the argument between James and his father. He even smoked there. I found the ash of a cigar. As you know, I am an expert on tobacco ash. I then discovered the cigar stump in the moss where he had thrown it. And the cigar holder? The cigar had not been in his mouth. Therefore, he had used a holder. The tip had been cut off, not bitten. It was not a clean cut, so I deduced a blunt penknife. I see where this all points. The murderer must be... Mr. John Turner, cried a voice. It was the hotel waiter opening the door. He showed a visitor into the room. The man who entered was a strange and impressive figure. He had a slow limping step, but his craggy face and huge arms and legs gave an impression of strength, of body and character. His face was white and his lips tinged with blue. As a doctor, I could see that he was a very ill man. Pray take a seat, said Holmes. You got my note? The lodge keeper brought it. You said you wished to see me here to avoid scandal? I thought people would talk if I came to the hall. And why did you wish to see me? The man asked wearily. I know all about McCarthy, said Holmes. The old man sunk his face in his hands, 
God help me, he cried. But I would have spoken out. I would not have let that young man come to harm. I am glad to hear it, said Holmes gravely. I would have spoken of it already, but my dear daughter, it would break her heart when she sees me arrested. It may not come to that, said Holmes. What? I am no police officer. Your daughter invited me here, and I am acting in her interests. Young McCarthy must be gotten off, however. I am a dying man, said Turner. The doctor says I have but a month. Yet I would sooner die under my own roof than in jail. Just tell us the truth while I jot down the facts. You will sign it with Watson as a witness. If the case goes against young McCarthy, I shall use your confession. You may be assured I shall not use it unless it is absolutely needed. It's as well, said the old man. I doubt I shall live until the trial, but I would still like to spare Alice the shock. I will tell you all. It will not take long. Chapter 5. A Riddle Answered This man McCarthy was a devil. His grip has been upon me these twenty years. He has blasted my life. It began in the sixties at the gold diggings. I was young and hot-blooded, but I had no luck with my search for gold. I took to drink and made bad friends. I became a highway robber. There were six of us, and we had a wild, free life. Black Jack of Ballarat was the name I took. One day, a gold convoy came from Ballarat to Melbourne. We attacked it, and in the fight, Three of our boys were killed before we got the swag. I put my pistol to the head of the driver. It was this man, McCarthy. I wish to the Lord I had shot him then. We got away with the gold and became wealthy men. Later, I made my way to England. I wanted to settle down and do some good with my money to make up for the way I had earned it. I married, and though my wife had died young, she had left me my darling daughter, Alice. I did my best to lead a good life and to make up for my past. All was going well until McCarthy laid his grip upon me. I had gone to London on business. There in Regent Street, I met him. He had hardly a coat on his back or a boot to his foot. Well, here we are, Jack. 
he said. We'll be as good as family to you, me and my son. You can have the keeping of us. And if you don't, it's a fine law-abiding country, and there's always the police. Well, they came down here and there was no shaking them off. They lived rent-free at Hatherley on my best land. There was no rest, no peace, no forgetfulness. Turn where I would, there was his cunning, grinning face at my elbow. It grew worse as Alice grew up. He saw that I was more afraid of her knowing my past than I was about the police. Whatever he wanted, I gave without question. Land, money, houses. Until at last, he asked what I could not give. He asked for Alice. His son had grown up. It seemed a great stroke to him to marry his son to my girl. I was ill, and when I died, his family would take the whole property. But I was firm. I would not do it. I did not dislike the lad, but the McCarthy blood was in him, and that was enough. McCarthy threatened me. I braved him to do his worst. Finally, we were to meet at the pool, midway between our houses, to talk it out. I went down there and heard him talking with his son. I smoked a cigar and waited in the trees till he was alone. But as I listened, all that was dark and bitter in me seemed to come uppermost. He was urging his son to marry Alice with no regard for what she might feel. It drove me mad to think that I and all that I held most dear should be in the power of such a man. I had to silence his foul tongue. I did it, Mr. Holmes. I struck him down like a venomous beast. That is the truth, gentlemen, of what occurred. It is not for me to judge you, said Holmes as Turner signed the statement. You know that you are to answer for your deeds at a higher court than ours. Farewell, then, said the old man. Your own deathbeds, when they come, will be the easier for the thought of the peace which you have given to mine. He stumbled slowly from the room. God help us said Holmes after a long silence. Why does fate play such tricks with poor, helpless worms? James McCarthy was acquitted at the trial, mainly because of the evidence presented by Holmes to the defense. 
old Turner lived another seven months. There is now every chance that James and Alice may yet live happily together. In ignorance of the cloud which rests upon their past. <laughs>